All right, well, happy Super Bowl Sunday. My favorite holiday by far. I mean, I think the great thing about the Super Bowl is you know it's just a game. You know, you get into it, but it doesn't matter. I, the way people cheer for all sorts of other things that they think are really serious in life is just a complete waste of energy for the most part. The Super Bowl, we all know it's pretend. And besides that, how much better are nachos than turkey anyway? So, but uh, I don't even care who wins the game today. I'm just, I enjoy seeing the nation unified around something that we all know doesn't matter. We need more things like that, insignificant things, to remind us of the things that do matter in life. Well, we've come to 2 Samuel chapter 14, and if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the life of David. And 2 Samuel takes us through the life of David once he became the king of Israel. And things were going along pretty well until he really messed up. And he, he had an affair with a woman who was married. And then to cover it up, she had, he had her husband killed and a bunch of other people killed in the process. And then he came out as like, whoa, look, I'm going to take this poor widow and I'm going to take care of her. And God, it finally said, God just looked at it and he goes, this is just disgusting. This is not pleasing at all. But we've seen how God dealt with that. You know, he, um, his friend, Nathan, who was a prophet, came to him and told him a little story about, a, you know, and he goes, you know, there's this guy that all he had was this one little lamb, and it was like a member of his family. There's this other guy who had a whole bunch of lambs, but he wanted to, you know, cook a lamb, and he didn't want to use one of his own, and so he went and took the one away from this guy that only had one and cooked him. What should happen to that guy? And David's like, that's terrible, that's horrible. That guy, bring him before me, and we're going to... And Nathan goes, talking about you, David. And then it hit him immediately. Oh, that's... I have a bunch of wives. Poor Uriah had one. And he loved her. And I did this. And he was devastated. And he ended up admitting that he had sinned. And Nathan told him, and God's forgiven you. However... There are consequences to making a choice like that. And we saw how he laid out the life that was going to ensue as a consequence of what he had done. And as we talked about consequences, we talked about the fact that consequences are one of the most scary and ominous things that we face. To know that if I mess up, if I make a bad decision, it can create devastating ripples throughout the rest of my life. But I also recognize at the same time, in the same way, if I make a good choice, there can be positive consequences in my life moving forward. And so we saw how consequences are a mixed bag. Yeah, when they're bad, they're bad. But that reminds us that they can also be good. But we saw what happened with David, where basically we see him as he was always dysfunctional as a dad, but now he became an enabler. And we read the story about how, you know, his, his uh, you know, one, one of his sons had ended up, you know, molesting one of his daughters, and then her brother kills 
him, you know, kills that guy. And now Absalom is on the run and he has to take off. And, and he's now hiding out with his grandpa in a little kingdom that his grandpa was the king over. And in the end of chapter 13, David longed to go to Absalom because he had comforted, he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. He's like, Amnon died, that's a bummer. But I miss Absalom, but why doesn't he go and tell him that? He just doesn't. He lets three years go by where he's feeling terrible and he hasn't done anything to rectify it at all. So now when we come to chapter 14, his buddy Joab, who Joab is like the most loyal soldier ever. Everybody needs somebody like this. He had been with David in the wilderness when he was on the, on the run from Saul. He had led his military the whole time as they developed and built the kingdom. And this guy was like, he, would he kill for, for David? He was the guy that actually ordered the hit on Uriah because David told him to. So at least you know this guy's got your back. This guy's loyal. And he saw David suffering, and he's just like, i got to fix this. I'm, I see that David is still not himself, and so i got to figure something out. Now, he, Absalom had seen, everybody knew, what had happened with Nathan. Nathan this, comes up with this great story about a guy with a lamb, and, and wow, it worked, and David repented and and accepted the consequences, came out public and said what he had done. So Absalom's, you know, Joab's thinking, I don't know, man, I'm not Nathan. I'm kind of David's, you know, hit man. But he goes, I bet I can come up with something. So what he does in chapter 14 is he gets a woman from Tekoa who, it calls her a wise woman there in verse 2. But as we said last week with Jonadab, Wise doesn't necessarily mean the kind of wisdom that we would value. It just means she's clever. She's basically an actress. And he puts her up to, you know, he, he got, Joab puts her up to going before David and trying to pull the same kind of stunt that Nathan did with David. He's like, oh, the story, that's going to do it. And so she comes in before David and she goes, and you can tell from the story, Job's been bugging David. Come on, let Absalom back. And he's like, no. So this lady comes in and she goes, I have a really sad story. First of all, I'm a widow. My husband's dead. All I have are two sons. And they got in a fight at a Super Bowl party. And one of them died. And the other one's the only one left. And now everybody wants him to be prosecuted for killing his brother. And you understand, if they execute my other son, now I'm a widow who's also childless. My poor dead husband's name won't be carried on. This would be awful. And she tells this story and delivered it pretty well. And David's buying it. And he goes, I can fix this. I'm the king. You go tell everybody, nope, they can't have your other son. This is an unusual circumstance, and so we're not going to execute your second son because the first one died. And she's like, one more thing, David. Um, isn't that kind of what you did to Absalom? Like, he killed your other son, and now 
he's not allowed to come back to the kingdom. And so she, she kind of, uh, you know, why have you schemed, in verse 13, such a thing against the people of God? For you speak this thing as one who is guilty, and the king does not bring his banished one home again. So then David's like, wait a minute. This sounds like Joab. And so he, he asks this woman, he goes, I want you to tell me the truth. She's like, oh yeah, king, y'all, I will be totally honest with you. He goes, how much of this stuff did Joab tell you to say? And she's like, king, I respect you. You're awesome. You're my king. I guarantee you, every word I said came from Joab. <laughs> she's like, I'm out of here, man. I don't, my husband's back at home. My kids are fine. Joab did this. And David's like, he's not surprised. He's like, okay. So he lets her go. And then, uh, you know, is the hand of Joab with you? He put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. She completely disavowed the whole thing. And so then David calls Joab in in verse 21. And he said, look, all right, fine. I have granted this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man, Absalom. And then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself. And thought, man, I'm glad I got away with sending that actress in here. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So he's like, finally, now we can move forward. And he's pretty proud of himself, really. I guess this was God. You know, yeah, I guess Nathan, he can be a prophet. But I pulled this off too. This is pretty good. And so then he gets up and he he goes and he brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. And then David says kind of a weird thing to him in verse 24. Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and didn't see the king's face. He's like, okay, he had two years where he's plotting to kill his brother. Three years while he's off living in exile. Now he comes back, and it turns out, another two years, and he hasn't even seen his dad, and they live in the same neighborhood. This is weird. But he's back in Israel, but he's kind of, you know, in the meantime, the, the author points out, Samuel, that no one in Israel was praised as much as Absalom, verse 25, for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Which you would go, well, that's sort of irrelevant, but it really isn't. Because it becomes more, everybody sees him, and it becomes kind of more obvious. Wait, he's a prince. He, in some day, may ascend to the throne. He's number two behind David. He's amazing looking And here he is, it's kind of awkward and weird. He's living here, but you don't ever see David and Absalom together. It goes on to say, and I hate him for this, he would cut his hair once a year. And because his hair got so heavy, and when he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. That's like five pounds of hair every year. I haven't had five pounds of hair in... 50 years, <laughs> but they, here he is. He's in Israel doing nothing. 
He's gorgeous. He has this, I mean, on the one hand, you're like, well, I'm glad he's back home, but he can't even see his dad. I don't think David's feeling that much better about the fact that, if anything, it's more awkward for David that he's got this great-looking son. And David used to be good-looking, but, you know, he's been knocked around quite a bit, and so he's kind of over the hill and, you know, just shows old pictures of himself. And so (laughs) Absalom ends up starting a family. He has three sons, and then he has a daughter whose name was Tamar. He named her after his sister, and she was a woman of beautiful appearance. But he was there for two full years, verse 28, but did not see the king's face. It's like, okay, somebody has to do something about this. So Absalom sent, it says, for Joab and said, you know, I need you to go tell my dad that I should be able to see him. And so, but like Joab's ghosting him. Joab won't call him back. He's like, he's not answering my calls. So he does it a couple times, and as you read on down, he's like, okay. He has a field right next to my field. He tells his servants, go light Joab's field on fire. That'll get his attention. And so they did, and then Joab comes out, and he's like, what are you doing? Why are you burning my field? He goes, I kept calling, and you're not returning my calls. So, you know, he goes, I sent to you. I wanted to do this. Um, And then he goes, why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still, which is true in a lot of ways. When he was there, he was, his grandpa was king. He's getting older. Absalom was probably in a position to be able to rule Gesher, and he doesn't have this weird family baggage that he's having to deal with. And so he's going, if I can't get back friends with my dad, what'd you drag me here for? And, you know, Joab knew this was coming. That's why he wasn't returning his calls, because he's like, it's just still awkward. Hadn't ended the way he thought. So he said, let me see the king's face. And look at this in verse 32. If there is iniquity in me, if I'm wrong, then let him execute me. Absalom's like, rather than live in this awkward state, I'd rather go see him and have him kill me. So he's pretty desperate. So Joab went to the king and said, well, here's what Absalom's saying. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, humbles himself. There he is, face to the ground, hair flowing all over. And the king kissed Absalom. He bends over and he kissed him. And that's it. They were never close after that. In fact, what would come next is the beginnings of Absalom trying to overthrow David's kingdom. But it feels like at this point, okay, Joab, this is what you wanted. Here's what you got. Now, first of all, I mean, Joab's trying to do a good thing, right? I mean, the idea of, come on, let's get everybody together. Let's get a fresh start. I appreciate that. There's a lot that I admire about Joab, by the way, and there's a lot that I admire about Absalom. But he's trying to make this reunion, The problem is, David is still that guy who, first of all, there are consequences to his previous sins, and he's having a hard time getting past those, knowing that this is a part of it. Secondly, David is still just as dysfunctional as he ever was before. 
that hadn't changed. So you bring Absalom into the picture, it doesn't change the fact that David is, David is totally dysfunctional and the fact that he is such an enabler that he's created this situation himself. And here poor Joab's trying to like, let's get them all together and let's just forget, can't we just get along? And the answer is, actually no, it's way more complicated than that. And now Joab's desperately trying to make it work when the truth is, what Absalom said is true, they probably both would have been better off. And when you read the next couple chapters and see what happens, they certainly would have both been better off if Joab had left well enough alone. See, and this points out for me what is the main problem of what happened in this chapter. And that is, you cannot change the past. You cannot go back and fix the past. Now, if you rip somebody off, you could certainly go pay them back. But for the most part, life consists of there are consequences from your past that don't go away, but there are choices that you make in the present that create your future. And if you spend your present trying to undo the past, guess what? You mess up the present and you create devastation moving on into the future because now you are wasting a huge opportunity that today, what you do today matters, that what you do today creates a future. Now, the things in life that you don't like today, they were probably created as a consequence of things from your past. But that goes on in order to remind us that our choices matter, that there are consequences to what we do. And I find when I see that I'm paying the price for something dumb I did in the past, it's a great reminder to me that what I choose to do today matters as well. It's one of the great things about going through and purging your closet or going through and cleaning out your garage or the trunk of your car or whatever. It's like you're forced to face the stuff that you thought you would want, and now you don't. And you think that if you get rid of it, that you're like saying, I was stupid. No, you were stupid whether you get rid of it or you keep it. In a way, if you hang on to it, it's more stupid than if you just say, well, there's a lesson there. I'm not going to buy another one of those. And you move forward. So what, what Joab's trying to do is to short circuit the natural process of growth that happens when we realize there are consequences to our choices. Now, I have choices today, and I get to make those choices, but I cannot afford to be distracted by consequences from the past. Because remember, if you think you can clean up your messes from the past, what you are also saying is there is a way for consequences to not come, to not happen. And if it's true that I could undo damage that I've done in the past, then what's to say that the good choices that I make can't be undone as well? And so understanding this is super important. I also think it's really important here that the nature of forgiveness goes contrary to this tendency that we have to try to fix the past. You know, the beauty of forgiveness, forgiveness means you don't have to fix the past. Forgiveness is you set this aside. God forgives us. Now, you know, and I had on my, his channel, 
program where I answer Bible questions, somebody asked about what does it mean that if, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you? And I said, it's not that God doesn't literally, like he holds your sin against you and, and you're not a Christian. But what it is, if you can't learn to forgive others, which means if you can't learn to take something that's happened, it's in your past, and say, I'm pushing that aside, then you still have the same issue that you're going to believe that God's still holding it against you, what you did when, you know, 10 years ago, what you did in the past. If you live your life in the past, it works that way across the board. But the beauty of forgiveness is I can go, life is too short for me to sit here and question what I did before. It won't fix anything. And we see this in every area of life. When people begin to have regrets about what they've done, all it does is cripple you for, oh, sorry, I think the word cripple, you can't use it anymore, but (laughs) you know what it means. Um, It makes you unable to move forward in a healthy way because you're living in something that you can't change. If you learned anything from Marty McFly at all is you can't go back and change things by changing the past. You have to move forward into the future. And that's one of the great things about forgiveness. One of the worst things about trying to fix the past is that you let the past steal the present. And if it steals the present, it steals the future. There are so many people whose lives are devastated because of something that happened in the past. That should not be. That isn't right. You can't beat yourself up or anybody else up over something that's already passed. It's gone. It's done. We can't undo it. In fact, we shouldn't undo. There are consequences to it. We pay those consequences. Um, There are times when, and that's why I think forgiving people does not mean you go to them and you offer your forgiveness or you let them know that you forgive now, that's not what forgiveness is. You don't deal with it. You just set it aside and go, I got to move forward into the present. I've had people, there were times, you know, all my years in ministry, I've had people come up to me and go, you know, Dave, that was, I loved your message. And I just, I feel like I wanted to tell you that for the last 25 years, I've really resented you. You've offended me. You've done things I can't forget. And I, and I just want to tell you, I forgive you. I'm like, I didn't know you were mad at me. I don't remember what I did yesterday. Whatever I did, sorry. But, you know, to say that you held resentment against me all those years and now you think it fixes it to tell me about it, that doesn't, that's not what forgiveness is. If you forgive somebody, let it go. And the more we learn to put things behind us, the more we discover that now I'm free to live my life today, moving forward. Now, we love the idea of reconciliation. A lot of times, it's not what's best. If you ask yourself, what if like, and again, Absalom says this, I would have been better off if you had left me in Gesher. Is that true? Absolutely. Because what results from him coming back is that now he ends up dying as a young man. He ends up dying. David's thrown off his throne, disgraced. It's an embarrassing mess. 
you know what, Joab, you should have left well enough alone. You didn't have to go back and untangle it. Maybe you've seen times when you're like, you go through trying to fix something from the past. Forget it. If you can't put it in the past, then, you know, it'll destroy you in the present. I, I know there are people who, for instance, um, think that everyone should all, you know, find people that you resent and go and talk it out with them. Usually you're way better off not doing that. Remember when Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey? It was great. Paul and Barnabas, what a team. They were awesome. God was using them and an amazing, such a, such a great teamwork. But then on the next missionary journey, when Barnabas brought his, his nephew, John Mark, and then they got gone, things got a little weird, and Mark went home to his mom in Jerusalem. And so then that was kind of disgusting to Paul. So the next missionary journey, Barnabas is like, okay, Mark's all packed up and ready to go. And Paul's like, we're not taking Mark with us this time. I learned my lesson. And Barnabas is like, come on. He, you know, he's young. You got to be sensitive. I, you know, I understand him. I'll take responsibility for him. And Paul's like, nope, not taking him. Barnabas goes, then there's no more Paul and Barnabas. This, we're breaking up this band. It's like, you can blame John Mark. You can blame Paul's stubbornness, whatever. But people always analyze that and they're like, oh, how horrible. But here's what happened. Paul now take Silas with them. They went through a really hard time as they moved through, you know, the empire, ended up in jail, you know, in in Philippi. And and so, but God did great things through Paul and Silas. Now you go, well, Barnabas, though, what did he ever accomplish? I don't know, but I know what happened to Mark. He went back home to his mom, who who was the host for the church in Jerusalem. And Peter went to that church. And Mark ends up, because he's not on this missions trip, he ends up getting to know Peter. Peter's telling him all his stories about Jesus. And guess what? Mark wrote the first gospel. The first gospel that was written, Mark was written before Matthew, Luke, or John. So if Mark had been on a missionary trip, he'd be in jail right now. The fact that he didn't go, he wrote the first story of Jesus. And in fact, later, when Matthew wrote his gospel, most scholars believe that he used Mark as a basis because Mark was a guy that just told what happened and mostly from Peter's perspective. So Matthew wanted to add some flavor to it, and so he wrote his gospel. Luke used them both when he put together his gospel. But if, if, if Paul and Barnabas had just patched things up, if people in the Ephesian elders had gone, okay, come on, we're going to sit down and we're going to settle this, go to Christian mediation. No, it would have been, we wouldn't have the New Testament that we have if they had patched things up. So the truth is, it worked out great. Who was right about taking, it doesn't matter. You move forward. When you try to fix the past, quite often you run the risk of destroying something amazing that God's going to do. Remember in the Old Testament with the Tower of Babel? It was like this great, and I'm always skeptical of any movement that goes, let's just all get together. Let's see how many people we can gather together. Because the first time that happened was the Tower of Babel. And God was like, we're not having this. And he confounded everyone's languages, and he sent people all over the world 
divided them by the fact that they're speaking different languages. God did not want to have, let's just all get together. And so now on the day of Pentecost, centuries later, you had people from all over the world in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes on all of them. What happens? They begin to hear the gospel in their own language. So what does that do? Now they go back to where they came from and the gospel spread throughout the known world. They didn't just all become a part of some mega church in Jerusalem. Church in Jerusalem stayed kind of the way it was. Everyone goes, yeah, I'm, I like my own language and God has spoken me in this, so I'm going back home and we're going to get this thing going in my home, in my town. More often than not, that's what God does. You know, and we talk about whom God has joined together, let no man put asunder. I would also say, whom God has put asunder, let no man put together. One of the only, one of the only real laws about divorce, by the way, in the, in the law, was if you're married and you get divorced, don't ever go back and marry each other again. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. You don't fix it. If it gets to that point, Move on, move forward. Stop trying to undo the past. If you can't let go of the past, then you'll be a slave of the past. And you know what that does? It wrecks your present, which therefore wrecks your future. And so, you know, another lesson that I see here too is that as much as I like what Joab tried to do, don't play Holy Spirit with people. Don't think that you're the one that's going to get these people and fix. No, that always backfires. Every time as a pastor I've tried to get people together, they finally agree on one thing, that they both hate me. Because it's just like, <laughs> the Holy Spirit does something great, but you don't need to be the Holy Spirit. Let well enough alone. Move forward. So you go, but what do you do with the past? You learn from the past. You shouldn't deny the past, but you should look at what's happened and say, here's what I've learned, and I'm going to take that knowledge that I have, and I'm going to apply it to the decisions that I make today. But as soon as the past starts dragging me down, as soon as I start trying to, you know, I need to go back, and I need to reconnect with those people, or get back with that, or whatever happened to my first girlfriend, and it's like, no, Move forward. Learn your lessons from your successes and your mistakes, but start life now. Start life today in the present. If you don't do that, then your past will destroy your present, which will destroy your future. Paul talks about this in Philippians when he goes, there's one lesson I've learned. He goes, you know what? I forget what lies behind and I reach forward to what lies ahead, and I press toward the mark for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If Paul says, this is my one rule, it's a pretty good one. That it's like, what's past is past. I don't need to go back and fix it. I don't need to change what's happened. I don't need to make up for it, compensate, any of that stuff. I start with life today. I was talking to someone recently whose life's really messed up and he blames everyone else in his life for it, which every narcissist does. But I told him, you know, he wanted to know, how can I fix my relationships with all of these people? I said, you don't. 
I go, there's hundreds of millions of people in this world that don't know you. Go form relationships with them. And then if it starts feeling the same way, maybe it's you, that you're the thing. But we cannot take the baggage from the past and let it become our agenda. This is always true in families. It's why forgiveness is so important for a family. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. If you want to ruin your present and if you want to ruin your future, here's how you do it. You start regurgitating the past. You start, well, this is just, this reminds me of, you know, you said blah, blah, blah. It's like, I said that like 20 years ago. It doesn't matter. It's, I'm having it as evidence. And if you want to do that, you're not getting anywhere. You're destroying your own family when you keep drudging up whatever it's been from the past. I mean, unless you really think that you're without sin and everyone else is full of sin, which then diagnoses you pretty clearly. But ultimately, a family can only move forward if we can say, okay, let's just not, let's just not deal with anything that's past. Let's see, what do we have right now? Where are we now? What decisions can we make right now that will really matter? So the same thing is true in a church. You can't live in the past. You can't, you can't sit and compare what you're doing with what, what was, you know, man, the church that I was in when I was a kid, we did this. And it's like, you know what? Here we are now. Our intention is not to fulfill anything from the past, or to imitate anything from the past, to counteract everything from the past. Here we are today. What do we do today? If you don't understand that, you don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel is an amazing thing. It says, you can start over right now. Nothing that happened before now has to determine what you do now and what your future ends up becoming. Are there consequences and scars? Yeah. More and more those scars become trophies of what you've survived. But you make your present that which is most important. If you've never given your life to Jesus, that's the simplest definition I can give to what Christianity is. It's deciding that I'm going to start over right now because I realize my future, the part of it that I can influence, is determined by what I choose to do today. If you've never done that with him, I pray that today you would do it. But if you've been a Christian for a long time and you're still trying to fix the past or live in the past or glamorizing the past or whatever, get over it. Because the, today is more treasured than any other time in your history. Because today is all you have that when you invest in it, that it can create a better future. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story it's a hard one. I mean, we look at Joab and we're like, okay, that was, pretty, that was a pretty good effort. We look at David and we're like frustrated with him. As much as we love David, he's, he can be a real jerk sometimes. And poor Absalom, we feel like he sort of tried to do the right thing, but we know he's gonna, it's going to turn him into something else. What he chose to do on this chapter becomes what he becomes in the next couple chapters. But Lord, teach us lessons from these men who you recorded their lives so that you could inform us of the power 
of the choices that we make on a daily basis. Help each of us to, like Paul says, forget what lies behind. Today we choose to put the past behind us because whatever in the past cannot help us in the present or the future. So help us to stay focused on what's before us, learning lessons from the past, but focusing our energy and attention on the present so that we can have a future that you want us to have. Lord, draw people to yourself. If there's somebody here who's never really chosen to turn to you, help them to understand how simple and what an amazing gift this is, that they can finally start over, that they can experience that the God of heaven says nothing that you've done before now matters anymore. You have consequences, but your choices are going to determine your future. Please draw them to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.